My, as he said, my name is Jeff Jones, and I'm so glad to be with you guys today. Buddy shared I had the opportunity to come up here uh, to visit with him and some of the staff a few years ago to talk about this idea of purpose. And as he said, that is my wheelhouse. I love it. Um, I don't mean that in some sort of like confident, arrogant way, but I, I just have this passion to help people discover and articulate and, and just take next steps in living out their God-given purpose. And so uh, today, as I join you guys for this series where we're looking uh, at this idea of serving, this idea of service, and, and service not just in doing something, but doing something in a way that might embody the attitude and actions of Jesus, I thought it would be appropriate for us to talk a little bit about purpose. First thing, uh, maybe I could introduce myself a little bit more. As, as Buddy said, I, I'm married to my wife, Ashley, and we've got two amazing kids over there. My parents are here, um, and I was, for the most part, uh, raised in Plano, though I was born in Columbus, Ohio, uh, at the Ohio State University. Um, so I just had to pause there. Um, but I found my way to Texas. I went to the University of North Texas, and I graduated with a marketing degree um, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. You know how you feel like you're supposed to go to college, get your degree, and that's your next step. I've got a marketing degree, and now I'll be a marketer. <laughs> but that wasn't God's plan for my life. As a matter of fact, I was reflecting on some of my jobs. My first job when I was in high school was working at the Steak and Ale at Parker in 75. If any of you ever went there? Um, I may have cleaned your table because I was a bus boy, or I may have prepared your potato because I also worked as a prep line cook. Um, I also worked at Black IP over there at 15th and 75 for a bit, and uh, I was even, uh, perhaps you were in need of a fine button-down shirt, and I may have helped you at the Eddie Bauer at the Collin Creek Mall. And so I worked there for a bit, but, but there was one job I always wanted to, uh, kind of always wish I could have uh, had, but but it, it just wasn't a fit. It wasn't God's purpose for my life. It was hard, but, but it was, all came from a show in the 70s, an obscure show in the 70s called Emergency. I don't know if you ever saw this show, Emergency, but it was two paramedics that worked at a fire station, and they were these first responders uh, who would be going into crazy situations. Uh, I, there was this equal thrill and adrenaline rush as I would watch them run into situations that I knew I wanted to run away from. I'll never forget that show, which may be also one of the reasons why I'll never forget October 13th, 2010. In fact, you may remember it too, because just 69 days earlier, in the Golden Copper Mine in San Jose, Chile, 33 Chilean miners lay trapped, buried 2,300 feet below the surface of the earth. And you can imagine when that happens, the first responders came rushing out. Everyone rallied to this place in, to try to figure out how do we rescue these miners. They began to draw eight big drill bits, and they carefully drilled into the earth looking for signs of life. Well, 17 days into the search and rescue operation, one drill bit came back with a yellow note that said in there, were well in the shelter, and it was signed by the 33. Joy and euphoria broke out that day. Everyone was thrilled to know that the miners were alive, but it led to another question. 
how do we get them out of there? It was a question that stirred not just in Chile, but all across the world as people lent their best minds and resources, anything they could have, anything they could use to aid in getting those miners out, the world sent to Chile. And then October 10th happened. That day where the world stopped and all of us gathered around in TVs and watched slowly as this small capsule came up to the surface of the earth and the first miner stepped out of that capsule. He kissed the ground and he hugged his family and friends and and all of us just had this sense of, yes, this is right. It happened. We continued to watch one by one as the miners came out, greeting again their friends and family, thankful to God to be alive. And then there was the last person who came out, a first responder who had been there ensuring that the miners got the food and the water and got safely into the capsule to meet their loved ones. And that last person came out of the capsule and he stepped out and he held a sign that said this, mission accomplished. Oh, that moment. It's one of those moments I'll never forget. And I imagine if you were alive then and you remember that, it's a moment that you will for always remember too because it just felt good to be a human. We did it. Collectively, all of us rallied together to rescue these miners, to save them for certain death, to rescue them to life. Well, as you may know, those miners were instant celebrities. (laughs) They traveled the world as guests on talk shows. They were interviewed by news anchors. They were guests of honor at Disneyland and sporting events. They met world leaders. They traveled the world. Everyone wanted to celebrate the miners' strength, their grit, their perseverance. They wanted to celebrate that they were alive. Time magazine actually named those, the miners in 2010 as their persons of the year. But then a year later, there was another article that came out. An article in which they checked in on the miners to see how had they done in adjusting to this life after death. And the title of the article was this, Do the Miners Need a Second Rescue? As they revisited these miners, as they checked in on them, they found that many of them were discouraged. Many of them were depressed. Many of them had had even, when they came out and they were so excited to reunite with their family, they had divorced their family or separated from their loved ones. And certainly, most were just drifting through life, lost, without purpose. You see, even though the miners had been rescued from certain death, they were struggling to adjust to their new life. I wonder, I wonder if the reason that story resonates so deeply with me, the reason why I remember it so keenly is not just because some medical first responders were the heroes, but if it's because many of us, self-included, are asking ourselves that same question. Do we need a second rescue? This is the question that faced the early church. In fact, it was part of the motivation 
behind Paul's letter to the Ephesians. See, these early Christians lived in Ephesus, and Ephesus was a port city known as the gateway to Asia. It was full of diversity in life, and it was home to countless people from all over the world who worshipped different gods. These early Christians, however, were struggling to live life in light of their new relationship with God. They knew they had been rescued from sin, but they were needing instruction and encouragement how to live this new life. Which is why we can capture these words, and and, and actually I, I would encourage us to look at these words this morning from Ephesians 2. Verses that you may be familiar with, they're here on the screen. Let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's not something you did. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, many of us recognize these verses. In fact, it was one of the first verses I memorized as a young child. These verses were often equated or taught to me as being the gospel. And for good reason. This understanding that God had this incredible grace and gift for us. That there was nothing I could do to earn his favor. That, that my faith and his grace combined to be my rescue from certain death. However, I'd like to suggest, without the next verse, we're left in need of a second rescue. Let's read that next verse together. It says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. For much of my life, I embraced a 2.10-less gospel. I knew Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but 2.10 had not had the impact on my life that I believe a robust understanding of the gospel can have. Because when we settle for a 2.10-less gospel, it's a gospel in which we know we've been forgiven, but we don't know what for. A two-tenless gospel could never move us to serve like Jesus, but instead it leads us to a life of wanting and waiting, in need of a second rescue. So how many times have we found ourselves, Lord, I just wish you would come back. Oh, it will be so much better in heaven. And it will. And yet, here we are. Why? I believe Ephesians 2.10, as we look at this morning, will offer three truths that will transform our capacity to serve and love, that will help us be present, and will offer us the second rescue we so desperately need. Again, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. I, I love that word workmanship. Just think about that. We are his, God's workmanship. The original Greek word there is the word poema. You can see what that word has become in our common day English. It's the word poem. We are his, his creation, his, his masterpiece. We are this, this incredibly thoughtful and heartfelt expression. 
oftentimes we turn to art because where words fail, a poem or a song or a painting or a picture succeeds. And so as God looks at his creation, as God looks at his world, he says, this world doesn't need another word from me. It needs a masterpiece. This is something I believe David understood, which is why he writes in Psalm 139, 13 through 19, he writes this, and we'll have it on the screens for you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. The picture David paints of a God is of a God uh, that is this careful craftsman laboring over his creation, that he is paying attention to every line, every nook, every cranny, every edge, every groove. Every one of those is intentionally placed. Not one single detail escaping his eye, which means for us, it's everything that we like about ourselves. It's everything that we love about ourselves. But it's all those things that we don't like or love about ourselves. It's everything we know about ourselves. And it's everything we have yet to discover about ourselves. God has intentionally created and therefore sees it all. And I wonder this. How well... Do you know yourself? David writes this line, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. Do you see yourself as marvelous? As wonderfully complex? What do you know about yourself? Do you know? Do you know the gifts and talents that God's given you? I mean, how would you answer the question? What are you gifted at? What are your talents? That's kind of a weird question, right? Admittedly, that's kind of an odd question because I don't know about you, but it's like, I know some things I'm good at, but I'm a little nervous to be so bold as to say, these are my gifts, in fact, you know what I'm more confident about, and you may be the same, I'm more confident in the things I'm not gifted at. The things I see in others, oh, I wish I could run as fast as that person. Oh, I wish I was as smart as them. I wish I was as articulate. I wish I could, I would, oh. So many times we're better at seeing the gifts of others than we are seeing the gifts of ourselves. And yet I can't help but wonder if we do not know our gifts, if we don't know the gifts that God has given us and the talents he's given us, if you don't know the wonderful complexities of God's workmanship in your life, you'll struggle to serve with the intentionality and impact of Jesus. Consider this moment in John 13. 
I love this story. It's, I think, really at the heart of this series and really the incredible expression that we just had before I came up here. It's a story where Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, clearly, apart from this series, most of us are familiar with this story in some form or fashion. And in fact, it's the scene that's the inspiration for the divine uh, servant sculpture that has served as an image uh, for this series. But what makes this moment so impactful? Why, why is it so iconic? Why do we revere it so? Is it just because we know they wore sandals and it was dirty and dusty and they had really gross feet? <laughs> I mean, certainly we've heard that before. No, I, I, I think the reason why we remember this story is because it was Jesus, the Son of God. And what I think makes this story even more powerful is that Jesus knew who he was. I mean, read that line again. Jesus, it says at the beginning of this passage, Jesus, oops, knowing who he was, and that the Father had given all things into his hand. What are the things that God has placed in your hand? What are the gifts? What are the talents that God has given you? And how can you use those for service? this is true about Jesus, then for us to serve like Christ, we need to know our gifts. We need to know the things that God has given us. Now, if you're sitting out there and you have no idea what your gifts and talents are, which I don't believe is unusual. It's actually defined much of my life. I would offer you this. I would encourage you to ask your trusted friends, your family members, coworkers, neighbors, people who you love and you know who love you, ask them to answer the question, what am I good at? Our gifts are so hard to discover because there are normal, <laughs> like we've always been, who we are. And so I'd encourage you to ask someone, what am I gifted at? What would you say my gifts are? As a parent, I would encourage you, there may not be a better gift than to Tell your children the gifts they have and encourage them to offer them to the world for they are his masterpiece, his workmanship. And in knowing your gifts, you're able to be the gift the world needs. Craig Barnes, a Presbyterian minister, says this, you can only surrender as much as you know about self to as much as you know about God. And so, I encourage us to discover the workmanship that God has made us to be. As we continue in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's for good works. Our second truth here. Because you are not just created by God, but you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. In, much like children are found in the womb of their mother. 
which kind of reminds me of this game that people like to play that I'm not really good at. You ever been invited to play this game? You may not even know it's a game. I, I, I'll be honest, I, I think it's a game, but I'm not sure how you win at the game. And it's this game where you go see parents and their newborn baby, and then when you look at the baby, you go, oh, he's got your eyes. Oh, look, that's that, that upper lip, that's your upper lip. Oh, his nose, that's his nose. I can see it. Oh, I see it. Oh, I see it. I'll be honest, guys. I don't get it. I am trusting the nurses, the parents, the tag around the ankle that that's your kid because I have never once seen mom's eyes or dad's cheeks or anything in a newborn baby. But it's this game they love to play. And I said, I don't know who the winner is, but, but I think I do know who the winner is. It's the parents. You know how they light up? Like, yeah, those are my eyes. <laughs> that is my lip. Those are my cheeks. Yeah, we're created in Christ Jesus, but, but I don't think the same game applies to us. I don't think people look at your nose and go, oh, I think that's our Heavenly Father's nose. <laughs> look, look at that dimple. Oh, I think Jesus had the same dimple. No, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. I think God loves it when people look at us and they can see him in us. I said it's not the nose, it's not our cheeks, the color of our hair. I think it's the things we do, the life we live that has the greatest potential for people to connect us to him. And perhaps this is why in Genesis 1, we read this. Then God said, Lake, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. After making them, he says, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So we're created in his image for a purpose. To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. Subdue it. You were made on purpose by a God of purpose, for a life of purpose. The world will connect us with God when we live out our God-given purpose and engage the good work that God has prepared for us. And what I find so fascinating is there are few conversations that are bigger in our culture right now than people wanting to find their purpose. And the people they should be turning to are those who are followers of Jesus. Those who know the God of purpose. And so I wonder, for far too long, have we been trying to invite people or rescue people by just rescuing them from their sin and leaving them to figure out the rest? Or could we be the kinds of people that live lives of purpose and intentionality that point to and illuminate a God of purpose that the people who are in need of a rescue might come to us and say, I need what you have. I want what you have. They don't want just forgiveness. They want to be free to 
be, to live out what God always intended them to be. I wonder if this is why Jesus was often found dining with the likes of sinners and tax collectors, prostitutes, people who seemed to be far from God. It was as if he was drawn to them, not worried so much about their sin, but wanting them to connect with God's larger story, wanting them to see that God had a purpose for them. When it comes to the life of service God has for us, we were literally made for it. An understanding of Ephesians 2.10 can change how we see ourselves as a workmanship. It can change how we live our lives stepping into good works. But how do we know what the good work is that God has for us? Did you know there's a great chance well, here's what I know. Maybe not what you know. Here's what I know. My name is Jeff Jones, and there's a great chance some of you out there know another Jeff Jones. Yeah. Um, I actually am a pastor at Chase Oaks Church whose lead pastor happens to be named Jeff Jones. I am not the lead pastor at Chase Oaks Church, <laughs> and he's not my father. You know, um, my son, Will, he goes to uh, school in the neighborhood, and one of his good friends, Logan Jones, his dad, Jeff Jones. <laughs> and when my wife and I want to get our teeth cleaned, we go down the street to a guy named Jeff Jones. <laughs> what can I say? It's a name you can trust. <laughs> no, but for most of my life, I've wondered, what is my unique purpose in the kingdom? What is my God-given purpose? And it's made even more difficult when you see all these other Jeff Joneses being successful and running in their lanes. Not knowing who God has created me to be could move me into this competition of, I have to out Jeff Jones all the other Jeff Joneses. <laughs> and it leads me in need of a second rescue. You know, we share 40% uh, of our DNA in common with a banana. 98% um, of our DNA is in common with a chimpanzee. But those of us in this room as humans, 99.9% .9 of our DNA is in common. So when we're talking about our unique God-given purpose, we're talking about the 0.1% that differentiates us. And so we know we are God's handiwork. We know we're here is workmanship. We know we are created for good works, but specifically, what are the good works that God has created us to? All of us Jeff Joneses know we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of us know that as children, we're supposed to honor our father and mother. All of us know these things because these are our common calls, but what is our specific call? What was this Jeff Jones meant to do? It's really one of the reasons why I struggled to wear in high school the WWJD bracelets. You know, those rubber bracelets that are still common today, but when I was in high school, people wore these bracelets. And they were a reminder to us, well, what would Jesus do? And I knew I was supposed to be like Jesus, but as a freshman walking through the halls of Clark High School in Plano, I knew Jesus 
would heal the sick. He'd raise the dead. He'd change the water in that fountain to wine. And he'd walk on it. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that. And so it felt weird to hold those bracelets to say, what would Jesus do? Because I didn't know what Jeff was supposed to do. Then I came across this understanding from Dallas Willard that I so appreciated. He says, the goal of discipleship is not to be just like Jesus, but to be who Jesus would be if he were you. If he had your gifts, your talents, your friends, your resources, your neighbors, your job, who would Jesus be if he was you? All of a sudden, some things kind of fall off the table. I didn't have to do everything. I just needed to do the thing that God had placed in front of me. I needed to hear from God, which perhaps is why I love this story in Mark 1. In Mark 1, we come across Jesus. He's in Capernaum, and he's teaching in the synagogues. And then Simon and, and Andrew, they, 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 and James and John, they, they, they bring him to Simon's mother-in-law's house. They, they all say, hey, Jesus, um, she's sick. Can you help us out? And, and so they left the synagogue and, and entered the house, and, and Jesus healed uh, Simon's mother-in-law. She was laying sick with fever and spoke to Jesus about her. And he came and raised her up, took her by the hand, and the fever left, and she served them. And and now evening came, and, and sun had set, and, and everyone in the town is bringing all their sick, uh, all their demon possessed. Everyone who's, who's hurt and broken is coming to this house, and Jesus is taking care of it. It says, uh, he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Uh, but then the story turns to Mark 135, where it says this, And early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and prayed for a time. Simon and his companions eagerly searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may also preach there. For this is why I came. I love this story for a number of reasons, but the main reason is that on that day, in that moment, Jesus essentially said, No. I'm not going back there. I, I mean, the people I imagine, they wanted him for good reasons. He had just taught in the synagogue, hey, we want to understand the words of God the way you are able to teach them. Or, or hey, we know more people who are sick. Can you come back here and heal more sick? There, there are more of us who are, are struggling with discouragement and depression. We're drifting aimlessly. We're, we're separated from people. Can you bring these things together? And Jesus said, no. That's not why I came. I need to go to these other towns, for this is why I came. But I love that this statement, for this is why I came, follows his time alone with God. He heard from God. This is where you need to go next. So many of us are asking for our God-given purpose, and we want that solution to come from friends and neighbors and from a job and from right circumstances. But how many of us are building the discipline of hearing from God? We used to, up until last year, my, my, both my children are now junior high age, but we used to walk most mornings to the elementary school, which wasn't far from our house. And 
And I would have this conversation uh, specifically with my son when we were in a season in early first grade where I would say, uh, hey, Will, what's the one thing I'm asking you to do today? And he'd always pause for a moment, and then he'd kind of search for the answer I'm looking for, and then he'd say, bring home my water bottle. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's actually true. Your mom and I have been up to the school a bunch of times to grab that water bottle. <laughs> so, no, but that's not the one thing I'm asking for you to do. But please, yeah, please do that. That's like the second or third thing I'm asking you to do. It's like, but what's the one thing? I mean, we talk about this often. What, what's the one thing I need you to do today? Like, oh, my backpack. You want me to bring home my backpack? Because sometimes I, I run out to the playground, I get home, and it's like, yeah, no, no, that's not it either. But yeah, I mean, that is it. Please do that. I'd ask him again. No, the one thing, we talk about this often. And it would often be the third or fourth try, and he'd say, oh, listen and obey. It's like, yes, listen and obey. But not just listen and obey, not just listen to anyone and do anything that anyone asks well, I want you to listen for the right voices and to make the right choices. These things are linked together. Guys, as we look at this verse today, we find a God who not only rescues us from our sin, doesn't just rescue us from the darkness in our lives, from being trapped or enslaved. We find a God who wants to rescue us to new life and who has shaped us and equipped us and who has placed us with a purpose that is just in front of us. We need only to do this to walk with him, to walk in them. He's our guide. He's with us. And this is what I want for us. This is what I want for you. This is what I want for me. This is what I want for my family. That we would embrace a robust understanding of the gospel. And that is not just Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but one that includes Ephesians 2, 10. So that we might know and recognize the voice of God and be able to identify and extend our unique gifts and talents, the ones that God has given us to a world, to the world, so that as we all leave today and walk out these doors with the attitudes and actions of Christ into whatever good work God has for us, that we might meet it with confidence and courage, knowing that we're made for this. We got it. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for who you are. Yeah, God, just thank you for who you are. God, I'm so thankful for uh, that you are an intentional, loving God who adds purpose to the seemingly purposeless. You enter into chaos and you can sift and sort things and you can add meaning into our mundane. And so, God, I'm so thankful for who you are. The way you do that is an expression of your love for us. 
God, I pray for us shared as we walk out these doors that we do so not just from a posture of feeling forgiven but from a posture of being free and released to be the workmanship that you created us to be God help us to discover the gifts the talents the unique nuances that you have given each of us help us to steward them and extend them in a way that adds value to people's lives that shows them how much you love. Lord, help us to serve out of those gifts. But God, help us to go to the places where you lead us. Help us to walk in them. God, we are so thankful uh, for your love, but we're most thankful for that expression of love that is your son, Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection are the means by which we have new life. Lord, it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.